How do we know what's in our heart? How do we know what's in our heart? How do you know what's in your heart? Not the organ pumping blood through your body, but the core or essence of your being, what the Bible repeatedly calls your heart. The seat of your will, your emotions, your ambitions, your affections, your desires. How do you know what's in your heart? How can we measure our hearts? How can we measure the affections of our hearts? How can we measure our affections for God? How can we know whether we are loving God above all else? Well, arguably, one of the most dependable guides to teach us and instruct us about what's in our hearts is trials or testing, difficulty, affliction, conflict, temptation. There's nothing like a really bad day to reveal to us what's really in our heart. Amen? Have you ever just had a day or maybe like an hour of a day or a morning or an evening or something? Everything's just spinning out of control and you're like, man, I didn't know that was in me. <laughs> but it was in you because it came out of you. <laughs> didn't come out of nowhere. How do we know it's in our hearts? Well, trials, trials, affliction is one of God's kindnesses to us, to show us us, to show us ourselves. I once heard a pastor tell a story of having dinner with John Piper. This young pastor was talking about how he, he was pastoring this church, and then all of a sudden he got this cancer diagnosis, and he was really just floored by it, came out of nowhere. He was really struggling and in a lot of despair. He was talking to Piper about how hard it had been on him. And he said that Piper just looked at him and said, suffering is a good hermeneutic. And he was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does Piper mean? What is he talking about? Well, what he meant to that pastor and what he means for us even today is that suffering helps us interpret our lives. Suffering helps us interpret our lives. Suffering helps us see what's really true about us. Testing and trial and affliction and pain helps us see ourselves more clearly. Our text this morning is going to be Genesis 22. If you have a Bible, please find Genesis 22. If you don't have a Bible, grab a phone, grab a Bible app, grab a little black Bible in front of you and the pews in front of you. Genesis 22 First book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 22, will be our text this morning. And this text will teach us what I've been trying to say in these few opening minutes. Namely, that trials reveal our treasures. Trials reveal our treasures. In Genesis 22, God tests Abraham to reveal what's in Abraham's heart. To see whether his relationship with God is more important to Abraham than the blessings of God. God's aim is that he would be Abraham's greatest treasure, not his new son of promise, Isaac. God's aim is that he would be the treasure of Abraham's life. His aim in this test is to be loved more than the gifts that he gives. 
The giver must be loved more than the gift. The main point of this chapter can be summarized like this. If you want to write this down, I think this summarizes what we'll see in Genesis 22. Namely, that Abraham's faith in God creates obedience to God during a test from God, revealing his affections for God. <laughs> Try to use God as many times in one sentence as possible. Let me say it again. Abraham's faith in God creates obedience to God during a test from God, revealing his affections for God. So let's break our text down in three sections. We'll do verses 1 through 8, God's test. Then verses 9 through 14, Abraham's faith. Then verses 15 through 22, God's love. So God's test, 1 through 8. Abraham's faith, 9 through 14, and then God's love, 15 through 22. Number one, God's test, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, they went both of them together. Verse 1 unambiguously tells us what is happening in this whole story, this whole narrative. God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. This verse sets the stage for all that happens here in this chapter. It tells us how we should understand what looks like a demand from God for a human sacrifice. But God forbids human sacrifice later in the law in multiple places. He even says in the prophets that such an idea for his people that they would offer their sons and daughters on the fires uh, uh, to Molech, such an idea never entered his heart. He would never conceive of such an idea. So without this opening comment by narrator Moses, verse 1, God's command would be inexplicable. This is meant to allay any doubt that we may have about God's purposes here. There's no thought of an actual human sacrifice. God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Now that's Moses, the narrator, talking to us, the readers. Abraham doesn't hear that. He doesn't know what's happening. But it's unambiguous to us, the reader, 
that this is a test. This is a test for Abraham. Of course, taking tests is not what any of us enjoy. Maybe you're that weird person who loves a test. Lord bless you. Maybe exam week is your favorite week of the year. But let's be honest, college students, grad students, is exam week your favorite week of the year? No. <laughs> How many of us have agonized over taking the SAT, ACT, GRE, MCAT, some other test? Maybe at work we have to take a test to get further certified in our field. And you, go, you go to the eye doctor and you have to do the eye test. Does that ever freak you guys out? I have really bad eyes. And so they're like, you know, cover one eye, read that line. And you're like, A, O, B. You know, you're just, until the, you know, until you get the right expression from the doctor, you just keep trying letters because you're so nervous. You want to say the right letter. You don't want to get a new prescription. Tests freak us out. We don't generally like tests. But, you know, tests are part of life. They're just part of life. There's something we all have to do. They can be and are painful and difficulty and agonizing. But they're also, tests are also an opportunity. An opportunity for us to prove ourselves. Opportunities for us to show what we know. Show what we can do to demonstrate our capability. Did you know that God tests His people throughout the Bible? This language of testing is in Exodus in Deuteronomy, in Judges, one example would be Deuteronomy 8.2. The Lord says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And then verse 16, To do you good in the end. So why does God test His people? Well, it says plainly, to see what's in their hearts to see whether they can follow instructions or not, to see whether they're going to continue to walk in pride or whether they'll walk in humility. And ultimately, said in verse 16, to do them good. The test was meant to do them good, not to harm them. The tests for Israel and for us aren't because God is mad at us or because He's some cruel teacher who wants to just inflict pain because He's some masochist who likes to inflict pain. No, God wants to give us opportunity to demonstrate what's really in our hearts, to see whether we trust Him, whether we will humble ourselves before Him, whether we'll obey Him or not. Tests show us what we're really like. Again, as Piper said, suffering is a good hermeneutic. Affliction has a good way of interpreting for us what our lives are really about. The test that God gives Abraham here is unlike any test God has, any give, has ever given us. Notice the gut-wrenching nature of this test. Verse 2 again. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This test means that Abraham must sacrifice the son that he's waited 25 years to have. All the promises of God are, are built on the existence of this son. And then God comes along and says, you need to sacrifice this son. This test touches the foundations of Abraham's life. Notice how the Lord describes Isaac there in verse 2. 
take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Couldn't he have just, just said, take your son? Hey, Abraham, grab Isaac. Couldn't he have just said that? Why, why, why the piling up of adjectives to describe this boy? Because the Lord is showing Abraham and showing us that the preciousness of Isaac to Abraham is what's precipitating this test. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says, quote, This was the ultimate test. Isaac was now everything to Abraham. Abraham's affection had become adoration. God was not saying that you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. End quote. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. There's a parallel here back with this verse, back to chapter 12, verse 1, the first call of Abraham. Do you remember 12, 1? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Do you see the move from general to specific? Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. He's getting very specific about Abram, what Abram must do. Here he's doing the same thing. Abram, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Back in 12.1, Abraham was called to walk away from his past, but here God is calling him to walk away from his future. In 12.1 and 22.2, the Lord is asking Abraham to put his entire life in God's hands. The Lord has asked him from the beginning of his journey with Abram to give him everything. Following God has always required total devotion. Do you remember Proverbs 3, 5? Trust in the Lord with some of your heart. Oh, of course it doesn't say that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Or the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross every, every once in a while and follow me. No, he says, take up your cross daily. Take it up daily and follow me. Or Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Following God has always demanded total devotion. This is why Jesus can say crazy things like, you're either with me or you're against me. There's not a middle ground with Jesus. God wants everything. And at first glance, that sounds like he's just cruel and harsh. But when we understand that God is inherently, fundamentally good, as we'll see in just a few minutes, when we, when we have eyes to see him for who he is, we'll give him everything. How could we not? How could we not give the God who made us and is so satisfying, so beautiful, so, so good? How could we not give him everything? I wonder, I wonder, friends, what hard thing this morning is the Lord asking you to do? Maybe something you've been struggling in prayer for weeks, something you're agonizing over. Perhaps it's a dating relationship with someone who's not on the same page with you spiritually. Maybe there's someone in your life 
who's hurt you very deeply and you don't want let you don't want to let go of that hurt because if you let go of it you'll feel like you're letting them off the hook and you don't want to let them off the hook there's maybe someone you need to forgive but you feel like if you grant them that forgiveness it'd be like saying it's no big deal so you're holding on to bitterness instead of the freedom of forgiveness Maybe you have all the outward appearances of following Christ, but you're really struggling with whether God and the Bible and the gospel are real, but you're too afraid to talk to anyone about it. Friends, we all have those doubts and struggles and questions. You're not alone in that. Maybe you're dealing with confusion in your sexuality and everything in the world is telling you to just do what feels good, but you know what God says and you know what is best, but you're struggling. Maybe there's a job offer that's come your way. It's going to provide you more money, but you know it's going to be bad for your situation, bad for your family, that, that'll come with possible compromises for your faith. Friends, what kind of test are you facing? What kind of tests are you facing? And what kind of resolve do you have as you meet these tests? What hard thing is the Lord asking you to do? As we're learning from Abraham, Following God has always required total devotion. The Lord asked Abraham to do something unimaginably difficult. And look how Abraham responded there in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, cut the wood, arose, and went to the place. God asked him to do something crazy hard. And he sets his alarm clock a little bit earlier the next morning so he can get after it. There's no delay. The very next morning, Abraham moves quickly to do the thing God asked him to do. This is not impulsive. This is immediate obedience. Then verse 4 says it took three days for them to get to Mount Moriah. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This detail is hugely important. Think of it. Three days he journeyed with these two guys, a donkey with some wood, and his son. Three days he travels. So for three days, Abraham has to wrestle with what God has asked him to do. This detail is here to underscore the resolve of Abraham's faith. This isn't done impulsively. Like I said, he's, a lot of, he's had a lot of time here to think about what he's doing, to consider God's command. He's plenty of time to turn back. But he keeps going forward. He keeps going forward in obedience to God. Now the text doesn't tell us what he's thinking or feeling, but can you imagine the existential crisis going on in his heart? Can you imagine what he's thinking and feeling? How am I going to do this to my son? This is my boy. This is my Isaac. How am I going to do this? I can't do this. But he keeps walking. He just keeps walking for three days. Now this phrase on the third day, is also significant because it's found all over the Old Testament, uh, Testament from this point forward. Israel is called to Mount Sinai on the third day. Joshua leads Israel across the Jordan River on the third day. King Hezekiah is healed from his sickness on the third day. Esther reminds, uh, or excuse me, asks the people to pray, and then on the third day she goes before the king to intercede for the life of the people. You see the pattern? And then Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 and says, Christ suffered once for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the grave in accordance with the Scriptures. 
He doesn't give us a chapter and verse, does He? He doesn't say that Jesus rose on the third day according to Genesis 22.4. He says, in accordance with the Scriptures. What's He talking about? He's saying that there are patterns of events that took place in Scripture that Jesus is fulfilling. Jesus rose from the dead in accord with a pattern found in Scripture, not just a particular Scripture. Jesus fulfills prophecies and patterns. As, as we discussed briefly in the training class this morning, when we start to read the Bible with Christological lenses, or namely Jesus glasses, we'll start to see patterns and principles and prophecies and predictions all over the Bible that point to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. These aren't disconnected narratives. So on the third day, Abraham, arri Abraham arrives at Mount Moriah. And then look what happens. There's even more connection to Jesus' resurrection here. Notice the plural verbs in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Or it could be translated, We will go. We will worship. We will come again to you. These are plural verbs. Given what God has asked Abraham to do, how can he say that? Is he just, is he just saying that to make the guys kind of confuse them, make them feel better, to mislead his son? What is he talking about? Verse 5, we will come again to you. We, plural, me and Isaac are going to go up there, and then me and Isaac are going to come back. But God has already told him that, hey, you're going to sacrifice Isaac. What's happening here? Abraham believes that not even death can stop God's promises. Just last chapter, yet again, God told him, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham believes that no matter what happens up on that mountain, Isaac will be returning with him. He's thinking Isaac must inherit the promises. God has just told me again that Isaac will inherit the promises. So I'm going to go up there with Isaac. I'm supposed to kill him. I don't know what's going to happen. But something has to happen up on that mountain because God said that Isaac is going to get these promises. This is resurrection logic happening in Abraham's brain. He's believing that God will do something to raise Isaac from the dead. And the writer of Hebrews confirms this. Justin just read this for us a moment ago. Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figurative, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham had faith that God would take um, Abraham, go with Abraham up that mountain, and then God would bring Abraham and Isaac back down that mountain, namely bringing him back from the grave. This, this, by the way, this kind of faith is the only thing that explains this. If Abraham believed that he would go and sacrifice Isaac and then that's just the end, he doesn't do this. There's too much at stake. Only this kind of faith creates the kind of resolve to go through with this. He believes that God's promises will be fulfilled, so he goes forward in obedience to God. Interestingly, I was telling some folks earlier, nowhere does the New Testament connect the sacrifice of Isaac to Jesus' death on the cross. I know, as I've already been reading, you're like, there's the cross, there's the cross, there's the cross, and it, we'll get there, we'll get there. But interestingly, nowhere in the New Testament do the New Testament writers talk about this story 
in the context of Jesus' death. But what they do talk about it, how they do talk about it, is in the context of resurrection and in the context of faith, as we'll see in a few moments. Genesis 22 is teaching us that the kind of faith that saves is resurrection faith. We will go up there, we will worship, and we will come back. Brothers and sisters, do you have resurrection faith? Friends, maybe you're still considering Christianity. And Christianity has a lot to say about a lot of different things. A lot of people think Christianity is really weird and outdated because of our sexual ethic, because of our beliefs about, you know, what sex is, what it's for, what it's not for, what a person is. A lot of people think that we're kind of weird for that. I would submit to you that we have weirder beliefs than that. We believe that a man died was laid in the ground, and that a dead person got up from the grave. Have you ever seen that? No, you haven't. We believe that dead people will live. We believe that Christ is going to come back riding a white horse. We believe all kinds of weird stuff. Because the Bible is clear. The Bible is unmistakable that the kind of faith that pleases God is resurrection faith. Do you believe that God can bring someone back from the grave? If not, what are we even doing here? Is Christianity just kind of making your life better, making you feel better, you know? Kind of like your little self-help thing? Or is Christ really alive and literally working in your life? Because he's alive. We'll go up the mountain. We'll worship. And we'll come back. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen up there, man. But I'm coming back with my son because God said I'd come back with my son. Verse 6 says that Isaac had to carry the wood that he would die on. Verse 7. Isaac breaks the silence with a question. He asked his father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Then verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. The wording of, he, of, of Abraham's answer in Hebrew may indicate that he's actually identifying the burnt offering with the lamb or as the lamb. In other words, it may be saying that the burnt offering is you, my son, Isaac. And it's interesting that it says, so they went both of them together. There was unity. There was a oneness. It's very possible, probable, I think, that Isaac understood at this moment what's happening. But he goes with his father anyways. Profound silence falls on them. There's no more talking until the angel intervenes in a few verses. There's a heaviness and a sadness that pervades this scene. This is God's test, and it strikes Abraham at the foundations of his life. And that's what God intends to do for you. He intends to test us, to test whether our foundations are sturdy or not. Let's move to Abraham's faith. How does Abraham respond to this test? So number one, Abraham, or excuse me, God's test. Number two, Abraham's faith. Verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood 
in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verses 9 through 10, there's no talking. Abraham is all business. The camera zooms in, the action slows down. We don't see this in our English Bibles, but in verses 9 and 10, the Hebrew conjunction and is used seven times. Verse 9, and they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there. And laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand. And took the knife to slaughter his son. The author is forcing us to slow down so that we'll stop and ponder each movement. This is dramatic storytelling at its finest. This scene is filmed in slow motion, showing us that Abraham, it, what Abraham is doing step by step, building our anticipation. The first time we've read, the first time we ever read this text, when we don't know what's going to happen, we at this point are full of anticipation. Will Isaac die? And of course, notice that Isaac doesn't say anything. He didn't object or complain when Abraham told him that God would provide the lamb back in verse 8. And here he's silent as what, what's about to happen now becomes unmistakable. His father binds him. His father lays him on the wood. His father takes the knife. He knows exactly what's about to happen. And the text says nothing about him speaking. Isaiah picks up on this pattern and says that the Lord's servant will open not his mouth. But like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The servant, the lamb, will be like Isaac. He'll be the humble son of sacrifice we just sang about. Humble because he's quiet and quietly trusting his father all the way to the altar. Verse 11 says that Isaac was saved at the last moment. The angel called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. Then the Lord tells Abraham in verse 12 that he's passed the test. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for, here's the reason, for now I know that you fear God. So when he says, now I know, the, the Lord's not learning new information here. God's omniscient. He doesn't learn anything ever. He didn't know what was going to he did not know what was going to transpire on this mountain. So when it says, now I know, he's saying that now, Abraham, you've proved your faith and you know that your obedience is true. This test was for Abraham, not for us, or excuse me, not for God. 
This test wasn't for God's sake because he knew what would happen. God tested Abraham to show Abraham the genuineness of his faith. We know that God was testing his faith because he says, Now I know that you fear God. The Hebrew word for fear has a wide range of meanings. It can mean terror. It can mean reverence or awe. It can mean trust and adoration. This episode has revealed that Abraham truly trusts or fears the Lord. Now I know that you fear the Lord. You've demonstrated your faith, Abraham, by this act of obedience. You see, those who really fear the Lord come to know the Lord in such a way that they'll do whatever He asks because they deeply trust Him. And they deeply trust Him, as I said earlier, because they deeply believe and know and have experienced, they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In other words, fearing the Lord means trusting the Lord, means obeying the Lord. In his book on the fear of the Lord, Rejoice and Tremble, Michael Reeves says, quote, The fear of the Lord does not keep believers from sin in the sense that it makes us merely alter our behavior for fear of punishment. Rather, it brings us to adore God and so loathe sin and long to be truly and thoroughly like Him. In other words, those who truly fear the Lord aren't just afraid of God, they adore God. They're in awe of God and that awe creates adoration and, and love and trust. It's like the, the way you would fall in love with someone. You know, God, you're just like, you know, you're just, your mind is blown. You can't look away. Your mind is just, you're, you're captivated. You're captivated. This is the fear of the Lord. It's not merely terror. So much more than that. So when the angel says, now I know that you fear God, he's saying, now I know who you adore. Now I know who you love. Now I know who you trust. Now I know what your treasure is. Verse 13 says that Abraham saw a ram behind him caught in the thicket by his horns. <clears throat> this seems to indicate that the ram was always there, just out of Abraham's sight. Notice the detail. It was behind him. So he didn't notice it. Can you see what's behind you? Yes, if you turn around, you can. Oh, there's the baptistry. Wonder where it went. He didn't see what was behind him because it was behind him. This is important because it means that the Lord provided a substitute long before Abraham knew he would need one. This is the second time God's provision has been discovered to be ready and waiting. Just the last chapter, 2119, God opened Hagar's eyes so that she could see the well of water and be saved. Go get water and be saved. This is very instructive for us. Fast forward to the New Testament. We learn in 2 Corinthians 4 that the way any of us becomes a Christian is when God opens our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Namely, when God opens the eyes of our heart to see His holiness, our sinfulness, the sufficiency of Christ as an all-satisfying Savior, that He on the cross took our guilt, rose up from the grave, proving that He indeed is God and He's our only hope. And then we trust in Him because we can't Help but trust in Him. How could we walk away from a God so glorious and beautiful? So, in other words, we don't become a Christian unless God opens our eyes to see Christ. Namely, to see the substitute that's behind us that's been there all along. 
Maybe you've been in church your whole life. You've heard this story a hundred times. You've heard about Jesus thousands of times. But for whatever reason, there's, there's not affection in your heart for Jesus Christ. He's kind of just like a guy. He's going to get you out of hell one day, but you're not in love with him. You're not captivated by him. You don't want to give him everything. Why? Perhaps it's because, because your eyes haven't really been opened to his beauty. But when they are, it's called irresistible grace. When God sovereignly and graciously opens your eyes, you're like, yes, yes, I'm all in. Whatever it takes, I'm with you. Remember the, what the disciples said? Where else are we going to go? Lord, you alone have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? You're it. When we have eyes to see the glory of Jesus, we start following Jesus because we want to, not because we have to. May God give any here today who aren't yet trusting in Christ eyes to see the glory of the substitute who was provided for you long before you knew you even needed one. May God grant you faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was slain for your sins. Notice verse 14. 14 says that Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. This mount, this mount, it says, it said back in verse 2, is in the land of Moriah. So we call it Mount Moriah. This location is significant because it's where uh, later where David will build an altar and offer burnt offerings that turn away God's wrath and save the people of Israel. That's 2 Samuel 24, 25. This is where Solomon would later build the temple, 2 Chronicles 3, 1, where I, uh, Israel would come and offer their sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of their sins, creating a pattern of God saving His people through a wrath-bearing sacrifice on Mount Moriah. So we've seen God's test and we've seen Abraham's faith. Number three, let's look at this last section and notice God's love. Verses 15 through 22, God's love. 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Kesit, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. We won't spend much time on the genealogy here at the end. It's given, though, to introduce Rebecca, who's going to become a leading character in just a couple chapters. The promised son Isaac has been delivered from death, but he'll need a wife to perpetuate the promises of God. Rebecca will be that wife, and she's born to Abraham's brother, Nahor. <clears throat> 
Verses 16 through 18 is our focus, though. In verses 16 through 18, look what the Lord does. He confirms with a mighty oath. Look at 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. He confirms His promises with a mighty oath. This oath is God's way of guaranteeing His promises. He's made the promises in 12. He enshrined them in a covenant ceremony in 15. He gave a covenant sign in 17. And now here He guarantees the promises with an oath, a mighty oath. Now, we, we don't talk this way. We may swear in our mother's grave. We may swear on the Bible in a courtroom. But none of you have probably ever said, I swear by myself that this thing is true. <laughs> As if we're just supposed to believe you. So why is God doing this? Well, He's doing this to show Abraham how serious he is. Serious he is. Look what Hebrews 6 says. The writer to Hebrews refers back to this. Saying in Hebrews 6.13, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God's like, who am I going to swear by? Oh, there's no one greater than me. I'll swear by myself. So he swears by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. How are disputes finalized? An oath is final for confirmation. Why was this oath given? To show His people the unchangeable character of His promises. You see, God was already telling the truth. It's not like he started telling the truth here. He was already telling the truth, but because we have a hard time believing the truth, he adds the oath. Why does he do this? This is yet another evidence of his love for Abraham. He didn't have to do this. He could have just left this part out completely. He could have just said, hey, remember the promises? They're still true. No, but instead he comes to him and he says, by myself, the living God says, by myself I have sworn that these things will happen. Because he loves Abraham. He wants Abraham to know that what he said is true. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to know that his word is true. He doesn't want ambiguity. He doesn't want confusion. He doesn't want you to struggle with despair. He wants you to know how much he loves you. So he's spoken. He's given promises. He's given an oath. He sealed it all in blood. As the hymn says, the hymn says we'll sing in just a few minutes. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. So this oath is meant to encourage Abraham and us to continue trusting the Lord in the darkest moments of our testing. Notice that he adds a new promise, though, into verse 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Ancient times, the gate was the central place of a city. It stands for everything that a city possesses. Here, it's everything his enemy possesses. Notice it's the plural offspring who will possess the gate of the singular, his enemies. So out of Abraham's offspring, many, will come a singular seed who will defeat and own the enemy's city, if you will. 
A singular seed will defeat the enemies of God. Doesn't this remind us of Genesis 3.15 where it says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent? Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3. Singular seed will come and crush the enemy, namely Jesus Christ. But all of that's ancillary, I think, to the main point of what's actually happening in these verses. So here's the main thing to notice here in verses 16 through 18. Notice why God gives Abraham the oath. He does it out of love. But he also does it in response to Abraham's obedience. Look at what it says plainly in verse 16. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I'm making these promises again. Then verse 18, the end of verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. So bookended on these promises are, hey, Abraham, I'm affirming, I'm affirming my promises to you because you obeyed me. So a lot of times we talk about the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant, but it's actually unconditional and conditional. It was conditioned upon Abraham's obedience. If Abraham didn't obey, he disqualifies himself as a covenant partner. But he does obey. And because he obeys, God affirms his promises to him. The Lord isn't saying, hey, Abraham, I'm going to do what I said I would do based on your obedience. In other words, the ground of God's kindness is not Abraham's obedience. The ground of God's kindness is always God's mercy. God isn't obligated to bless us with anything. Abraham's willingness, however, to choose the giver over the gift is what guarantees that his seed will receive the blessing. In other words, Abraham's obedience is what proves his faith. His obedience gives him the confidence that he really was the recipient of God's covenant blessings. So this is about assurance. Abraham, because you've obeyed me, I'm making this divine oath with you. I want you to have all the assurance you can handle. Friends, when we're breaking God's commands and living for ourselves and not for God, don't we question whether we're actually saved? I know I do. I know I have. When we're breaking God's commands and not living our lives centered on God, we question whether we're saved. Why? Because obedience to God increases our assurance that we belong to God and disobedience to God decreases our assurance that we belong to God. Disobedience doesn't mean that we don't belong to God, but it doesn't help our assurance. Abraham's response to the commands of God proves that he's in covenant with God. His obedience to God proves his trust in God. James says this clearly in James 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or perfected by his works. Abraham's works proved his faith. Abraham's works didn't save him. God called Abraham and gave him the promises years before this happened. He was already in the covenant, but then his obedience affirmed, gave him the assurance that he was indeed in the covenant with God. He passed God's test because he truly feared the Lord. So the Lord affirms his promises to him because of his obedience. God tested Abraham to reveal what's in his heart. 
the giver must be loved more than the gift. Genesis 22 is asking us to consider whether we love God or God's gifts. I really don't think I think I can speak with a lot of certainty here that God will ever ask you to sacrifice your child. I just That's not going to happen. But what God has asked you to do in His Word is clear. So we need to consider, are we totally devoted to God like Abraham? Genesis 22 is teaching us that our, our actions reveal our affections. If Abraham gets to the top of this mountain puts his knife away and chickens out, then he reveals that his faith has not been real. All along he's been playing a game. But he doesn't. He carries through. He carries on with obedience to the very end. Our response to the commands of God reveal whether we're in covenant with God. Our obedience to God proves our faith in God. Of course, there's, there's one problem. The trouble is that our lives are littered with disobedience to God. Amen? Our lives are littered with disobedience to God. And so we may think, John, if what you're saying is true, then how can I ever know if I'm saved? How can I ever know if I'm in relationship with God? Well, there was another mountain, of course. There was another sacrifice on a mountain. Despite our idolatry and our sin, despite... God wanting to judge us for our sin, He sends Christ in our place to humbly and quietly walk up Calvary. Another son who walked up a hill with his father. He knew what the plan was, yet he went anyways, walking bravely, silently to whatever God had for him. He didn't try to sneak away. He didn't argue or complain. He resolved to do exactly what God asked him to do. Why? Because his father had a people who needed saving. And the only way they would be saved was through a substitute who would do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. You see, we need a substitute because we are by nature guilty. But in mercy, God chose to send Jesus as our substitute, as the sacrifice needed to pay for our sins. You're like, John, I'm a pretty good person. You probably are. But you've also struggled to keep the first of the Ten Commandments even this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't we put a thousand things before God every day? Our business, our money, our sex life, our family, our friends, our future, our motherhood, our career, our education, our comfort, our desire for control, our health. We put a thousand things before God. And then we come to God like a pretty good person when we based our whole identity around things that God created rather than God Himself. God is holy. He created us to live for Him. But we choose to live for ourselves and we choose our ways over His ways. We actually prefer things God created over God Himself. What's God supposed to do about this? Is He supposed to just let sin go? How is the sin and idolatry in our hearts supposed to be resolved? Through a sacrifice on a mountain where God's only Son, the Son whom He loves, Jesus Christ, carried the wooden instrument of His death up the mountain. He was the Lamb God provided for the sins of the world. He was bound and put on a piece of wood, but unlike Isaac, He didn't escape death. Isaac got to come off the altar. Jesus did not. Jesus remained on the altar where He was slaughtered like an animal. 
for our sins as our substitute. But of course, the cross wasn't the end of his journey. Jesus and his father walked up the mountain, so to speak, so to speak, and Jesus and his father both returned together. Jesus went through death and came out the other side alive and victorious so that everyone in this room who believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. So friends, if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm urging you to do that today. To open your eyes and behold His glory. The all-sufficient substitute sacrificed for your sins and your guilt in your place. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if our faith in Christ is true, it will be marked by radical obedience. Radical obedience. So what hard things is the Lord asking you to do? What idols is the Lord bringing to your mind even this morning that you need to talk to Him about? The Father walked up the mountain with His Son. And the Father and the Son came down that mountain so that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus' name will live with the Son in the glory of the Father forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Please take your word and write it on our hearts. Help us, Father, to know where we are with you and to do, to do honest business with you. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Give us eyes to see the treasures that, that fill our lives, the, the things that we are holding on to to give us hope and give us meaning and give us identity and give us joy. The things we are looking to that you've made that have become things that we worship. Reveal these things to us. Show us these things and give us grace to put our affections back where they belong on the giver and not not the gifts. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.